This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Where do we draw the line between abuse surveillance and love? What's up, everybody? My name's Tiffany. I'm the host of Crime Over Cocktails. And today I'm with my guest, Charlotte. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you on, finally. (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. So uh, my name is Charlotte and I'm the helpline manager at the Cyber Helpline. We're a charity in the UK that support victims of cybercrime and online harm um, by linking them with cybersecurity professionals. And we've just launched in the US. Yay, you did. Fine. When did you guys launch here? So we launched um, our pilot started on the 1st of June, which is super exciting. Um, And now we're in a couple of months time, we'll be launching our actual helpline as well. So right now, anybody in the US can use our our web guides and our chatbot. And then we'll be launching a helpline, which will be staffed by volunteers in the US, hopefully in around October time. Oh, that is so exciting. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We've been working on this for a couple of years now, so I'm really excited. Oh, I'm sure. Congratulations. Seriously, that takes a lot of hard work and dedication (laughs) because I'm sure you got some pushback. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've always known when we started the Cyber Helpline, the US has always been one of the places where a lot of people visit our website from. Um, so we always knew that we wanted to start the helpline in the US. So I'm really excited that it's coming to reality because we know that the need for it is there. Um, and we're the only ones doing kind of what we're doing worldwide, to my knowledge. So it's really exciting to to kind of bring cybersecurity expertise to whoever needs it. Absolutely. Actually, my last guest was actually a victim of this. Um, you know, she was actually being trafficked. And then when she got away, he thought she was actually going to come back. Like she was that stupid. And um, when she didn't, he started releasing photos of her and she lost her job. She lost the place she was living. Her friends turned her back on their back on her. It's just so crazy how these people can change your lives forever. Yeah. I think that's the the biggest misconception with cybercrime is that it's all online and if you if it happens to you maybe you've lost a bit of money and that's it but actually the impact that it has on people is massive even if you've lost money um you might a lot of the people that come to us don't care about how much money they've lost they're worried about their online confidence and their mental health um and whether it's going to happen to them again so the impact is is real um and and the impact's really violent even though it is happening in the online space Right, because that information can land up anywhere. I mean, if you can send it to somebody's boss in a corporation, that's just crazy. Yeah, totally. And there's still a major misconception around, especially in that lady's case you're speaking about where where she's been trafficked and he's using her pictures. There's still that misconception around, well, 
why were they taken in the first place? There's still a lot of victim blaming that surrounds cybercrime. And that's horrible. And and that's kind of like what happened to her because everyone didn't really believe she was trafficked because she was like 30. And obviously there is no age limit on trafficking. But people just assumed that she was actually like a high quality call girl and they all turned their back on her. It's fairly sad. That's the thing is that it can happen to anybody and you can be an elderly person that becomes a victim of a scam. But actually, if you're in your kind of 20s to your 40s, you're more likely to be a victim of cybercrime than any other great age group from the statistics of people that use our service, at least. So I think there's a massive misconception of either you have to be really young or really old. There's no in between. And that's just not the case at all. Right. I mean, I know a lot of the elderly, they are more of like those love scams where these people are going to come move here and give them the world. But first, you know, they need this, 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 and this, and then they're in jail and then they're in the hospital. And then, oh, I was in a horrible car accident, but they were never coming in the first place. Yeah. And we're seeing that all of the time. And it gets to the point where now you see what they call kind of pig butchering scams, where these people are actually holding money for the criminals and they become kind of criminals themselves without realizing that they're doing it so we're seeing these crimes and these scams get more and more sophisticated criminals are taking much longer to kind of get people to fall for them they're putting a lot of work into it and with the use of artificial intelligence now as well a lot of what people used to say as well if you get a if you get a message from somebody who says they're in america or in the uk and it looks like their English is really broken, then it's probably a scam. But actually, with the use of AI now, that's just not the case at all. It's really easy for people to put together really coherent sentences in a language that they may not even know themselves. That's scary. Totally. And we're seeing the use of AI more and more in these cases, not in a super sophisticated way, um, but just that they're able to use it to put together really good marketing. And that's what cyber criminals are, is they're not necessarily really technical people. And they can be, but in most cases, they're just really good at getting people to hand over money and they're good at that marketing side of things. Right. And it's funny you said that, that they're taking longer time because matter of fact, that woman I was speaking of, they talked online every day for seven years, seven years before she ever like hopped over there and met him. That's a long yeah. time to invest into something. Holy crap. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're the sorts of kind of scams that we see have the biggest impact because not only have you potentially just lost loads of money or in her case you're being trafficked as well and the abuse but you've also just lost a relationship that you've you feel that you've fallen in love you've met somebody online and you spend your days and nights talking to them and then it turns out they're not the person that they say they are they are and that's something that's really hard for people to accept and we have a lot of family members that come to us and say hey I think my mom or my sister's getting scammed how do I explain to her that this isn't the person it is because they've they've fallen in love with the person and they find it really hard to accept that that it's it's not really them. Oh yeah, I see that on Dr. Phil a lot. And your heart goes out for these women. They're like, but no, he's real. And they're like, no, like we've sent people to these addresses. There, there's no such thing as where they're working or there's no such road or, you know, and it's just like heartbreaking to watch. Yeah, totally. It really is. And I think that just 
goes to show the real impact of it because like I said it's not just the finances but it's it's that loss of a relationship and people don't tend to see that side of it you think of cybercrime as being financial or somebody calling you a name online but it goes so much deeper than that and I think in a way the cyber element is even scarier for a lot of people I mean my specialism is the cyber stalking side of it and we find that in a lot of cases the assumption from friends and family is, well, it's all happening online. But to somebody that's being cyber stalked, especially if there's physical stalking as well, the feedback that we get is that actually the physical stalking is horrible. But with the cyber stalking, it's even worse because you don't know where they are. You know, they're getting information, but you don't know how they're getting it. So it's even scarier for some people because it is kind of that that silence that happens where you know they're doing something, but you're not sure what. It's intrusive, you know, like you just don't know what's coming next. I couldn't even imagine living in that kind of fear. Totally. And some cases we've seen go on to kind of 15, 20 years plus, and there's a mixture of physical and cyber stalking. And it's not even the case nowadays that once you go into your home, you've escaped it. Even in your home, you're still worried about things like your Amazon Echo or those smart devices you have, whether it's a thermostat or even kettles. Um, and you you can't you lose that contact with your friends and family, which especially during COVID was major because how do you have those conversations with people that you can't see otherwise and make sure that they're okay and trust in them and check in on your mental health when there's somebody on the other end that may be reading those conversations? Oh yeah, that's it's scary. I actually work with a girl and she has a friend that. I guess, put an app on her boyfriend's phone. He doesn't even know about it, but she can read his text messages, his emails. And I'm like, yo, something's not right with your friend. Like, you can't do that. (laughs) No, totally not. And this is the thing. I mean, these are the sorts of apps that we call them stalkerware, but they're really easy to use. And I think there's a massive misconception that this is really hard stuff to get a hold of, but actually it is just an app. and all you need is physical access to someone's device to install it. In most cases, we don't tend to see them being used, but when we do, it's really simple methods that are being used to install them. And actually, with them, you can kind of, you can see everything. And it is scary because these are the apps that people are using to protect their kids and see what their kids are doing. But it kind of, when you're using it in your kids, it then normalizes that behavior. So then when you grow into an adult, how would you set that boundary that this is okay when you're a kid and I'm doing it to protect you. But if somebody does this to you in a relationship, it's not okay. And like you said, in some cases, people don't even know about it being there either. So it's it's really hard to kind of set boundaries in society of what is the difference between abuse, surveillance and love. Because right now, I think for a lot of kids, that message is being given to them that surveillance is love. You know what? I never even really thought of that, but that's a really good point because sometimes it's very beneficial and sometimes it's just plain creepy. So it's like, where where do you cross the line at? Yeah, totally. And I don't even think there is a real answer for that. It's something that I've thought about so many times. And for me, I can say that I'm anti kind of these apps all day and and tracking software. Um, but at the end of the day, in some cases, they've saved lives. But it's it's a matter of how do you draw that boundary? And I think that's a really complicated conversation to have. And I think it's a matter of 
when you are doing this with your kids, having that conversation with them about, hey, I'm doing this because of this reason. And sometimes people do it for bad reasons. And that's a really hard message to get across. I totally agree. So when we met in Arkansas, I watched you on stage and I actually took photos. You had on there, like the things that you guys cover are harassment, cyber stalking, cyber flashing, grooming, doxing, and intimate image abuse. Yeah. These are some of the things we cover. I mean, ultimately, we will cover anything online if it's malicious or a crime happening online. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be a crime because like in some states, intimate image abuse, which is more commonly known as revenge porn, um, isn't illegal. So we will still support with that. We will still support with things that happen online that aren't necessarily illegal. So anything malicious that happens online, we will help with. And those are just some of the things that we do help with and some of the things that we most commonly see being targeted against women and girls. Why is revenge porn not illegal? So it is in more recent years in most states. Um, I think it's now, off the top of my head, 48 states that um, have made revenge porn illegal. Um, And it's only very recently in the UK that it's been made illegal as well. And we had one of the first case prosecuted this year, actually, um, under under the new law. Before that, it's been uh, prosecuted under, under different laws. But I think it really shows how the laws take such a long time to catch up. Things often have to go through so many different stages before they're passed. And by the time they do, there's been so many cases that have to that have that haven't been prosecuted, which is really sad. And when it comes to technology in particular, things are constantly changing. I mean, who would have predicted AI being as accessible as it is now, like five years ago? It's it's scary, but the law hasn't catch, caught up with that yet. And I mean, even when you look at AI, there's been calls from even the major technology companies to put a pause on making AI any more clever than it already is until the law catches up with it, which I think just goes to show that even the people that are making money off, off of it are scared of what it could be used for. So when it comes to things like revenge porn, if we can't even catch up with the laws around that as quickly as we should be, what happens with more more sophisticated technology. But I think like the UK is a very good example of that because here we've got, for example, an online safety bill, which um, is meant to make most things that are malicious online become a crime. That's been years now in the making. I think there's been three different revisions of it. We've been waiting. We've had three different prime ministers uh, since it was first announced. So oh it just goes to show how long it takes for something to actually become law. Such a, I mean, thank God it's getting there now, but that's a shame. They just didn't want to take it seriously for a really long time. They didn't see the harm in it, but like this affects people. So it's like online bullying and everything. I mean, people are killing themselves because of what is being done over the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so something that's really hard for people to grasp is why are they doing it? It's just something that happens online. And until it happens to you, you don't realise what actual impact it has. And that's that's really scary that there's so much silence around it to the point that people are scared to get help because they don't know if they're going to get it. And even when they do get help, with the anonymity of the internet, there's a massive kind of misconception of, well, it's online, so they're not going to be able to find out who they are or 
they're they're using a VPN and hiding their identity. And yeah, whilst that does happen in some cases, there are ways around that that the police can use to be able to track somebody down and ways that, that we can support them to do that. But there's just a massive misconception around not only individuals experiencing it, but sometimes law enforcement themselves as well, of that we're not going to be able to catch these people because it's all online. People are smart for the wrong reasons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. some of these people, if they were just put their brains to better use of stuff, like just imagine where they could be, but instead they want to use it for harm. And it's just Yeah, like, totally. That's and especially when it comes to technology, I think that's always been a major thing is you have what we call like kiddie script hackers who are just kids who are really good at hacking and because they don't know how to use that skill for good. They're using it to hack into their school and government agencies. But actually, they have the skills to be able to use that for really good things. And there's not yet, I mean, there's been attempts to get them to use those skills for good and programs to do that. But it's it's taken some time for that to actually get into place. And how do we identify these people before they end up doing bad things? I mean, even in kids in school, are really good at looking up their boyfriends and girlfriends and their friends online and finding loads of information out about them. And there's a whole career in that called like open source intelligence that you can use to go and catch criminals online. But it's not made, they're not aware of that. But actually, if they were, it would probably be a career that a lot of kids today would be really good at. Oh, for sure. I mean, that sounds interesting as all hell. <laughs> yeah, you know? for sure. I mean, if you can like find someone on Facebook and get a bunch of information on them, you've got a career right there and people just don't <laughs> know about it. And instead they're using it to stalk and harass people. But actually you could be doing it to make a real difference and be doing the opposite of what of the criminal behavior. Right. It, back to the AI. I'm telling you what, like, that scares me. Uh, I remember my son telling me that he learned something in school that they had built two like robots, whatever. And within like a month or so, they had taught each other their own language. Yes. And so when they were talking, nobody knew what they were saying. and People were starting to get frightened. So they had to shut them down. And it's like, yeah. what were you planning? <laughs> Yeah, if I remember right, it was Facebook that did that, I think. Um, maybe someone else, but I think it was Facebook. But I always found that fascinating. And that was quite a while ago as well. That mm-hmm. was before the new AI technology that is now ChatGPT4 came out. Um, so nowadays, who knows how sophisticated that could get? And I think it's, it, I find it so interesting that there's calls from the people that are actually making money out of AI to stop it being used until or or to stop it from getting more clever until law catches up because these are people that have money in the game and even they're scared of its potential so it just goes to show how clever it can be and I mean there are ways to kind of detect if something's been written by AI but when you give it the ability to in that case like you mentioned to to learn from itself and to learn from other people eventually it gets to a point where it is indetectable that something is AI. And that can be used for so many things. I mean, we've had cases where, one very recently actually, where a mum was phoned up and it was her daughter on the other end of the phone saying that she'd been kidnapped. And um, she hung up the phone, she got a text saying, you need to pay X amount of money or we're we're not going to give your daughter back. And the mum was literally about to pay when her daughter walked through the door 
and they found out that the AI was being had been used, and and they basically used looked at the daughter's TikTok profile, taken voice clips from her TikTok, and used it to get AI to make her say something completely different. So AI is even to the point now where it can listen to somebody's voice and um, be able to get them to say completely different things. So things like oh, deep fakes you see online God. now. Um, it's it's really scary. There's been some of like Barack Obama. There's been some to spread fake news about things that that is really dangerous. And recently, even we've seen one that's been really sophisticated of a guy here in the UK who is known for runs a website called Money Saving Expert, and everything he does is on about how to save money and how to like keep your money safe. And there was a deep fake that went round with his face and his voice saying that there's a new type of cryptocurrency you should invest in. Um, And it wasn't him at all, but it looks exactly like him. It speaks exactly like him. And just the repercussions of that are are terrifying. Wow. That's fucking, wow. Like my mind is blown. Yeah, The daughter thing, could you imagine? You would be a hot mess. And then she's walking through the door, has no clue what's going on. That is scary. It's terrifying. And you can really see how this can now end up being used for life or death cases or even terrorist incidents. So you can see cases where maybe a CEO's voice has to be used to put something onto lockdown and they can use that to do that. I mean, we've, we've, we have seen kind of cases on, on that level where the CEO's voice has been used in AI to authorize bank transactions in the millions. So then what happens if there's there's some sort of capability to make a terrorist incident happen at a big factory and or AI in cars, for example, smart cars, if that gets hacked, there's the potential for that to be used to create roadblocks if it's a self-driving car to stop police from getting to an incident. So you can really see now how this could evolve into life or death. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, they could play with everything. I mean, the fact that somebody can actually like hack into your nanny cam or whatever, it's just creepy as fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. just imagine what, exactly what you're saying. I mean, they could recreate anything. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing is safe now. And a few years ago, all of this was happening around AI. Um, and it would be things like presidents, prime ministers, high profile people that. And people thought, oh, it's never going to touch me. But now we're seeing more and more that it is because it's easy to do. There's AI. I mean, ChatGPT4 that everyone's using is is free to use for anybody right now. There's also AI voice software that is completely free. And it's good stuff. Like it's it's not it's not terrible stuff that you would listen to and think, oh, that's obviously fake. And it's accessible to anybody. So anybody has the potential to use that for bad things. They need to regulate this shit somehow. Like, Yeah, and that's the scary thing is when it's taken so long for things like intimate image abuse to become a crime, it's just a matter of how long is this actually going to take for, for them to catch up with, with AI in the law as well. Right. I'm Chris. And I'm Mel. And together we host the podcast Spoil, Spoil My, My Movie. Movie. We were watching movies anyway. And we were having in-depth conversations about those movies too. So, we decided to share our thoughts with the world. You can expect me to gripe about inaccurate details like supposedly cold weather, but you can't see anyone's breath. And you can expect me to be totally adorable, 
but also psychologically deep. And by the end of each episode, we'll provide our respective ratings. Using a rating scale custom tailored to the movie in question. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. We're everywhere. We're actually behind you right now. So what is the difference between harassment and cyberstalking? So it's in in the UK, um, and I got the UK definition, but uh, harassment is causing fear or distress, but it may not be repeated. It may be things like name calling. It may be things, and I won't go into kind of the legal differences, but I'll just go into, into a bit of it. Um, it might be things like name calling. It might be things like messaging somebody, horrible messages. When you get into the cyber stalking realm, the nature of the harassment becomes more obsessive and more repetitive. So you'll be getting them messages constantly. It could be that somebody feels that um, they want to have an intimate relationship with you. It could be that they want revenge for you breaking up with them. It could just be somebody that is in, enjoys stalking and gets some sort of gratification out of it and enjoys the stress that it causes people but it can be things like um sending constant messages it could be hacking into people's accounts to monitor them so i think with the stalking it can be a little bit more covert in that it doesn't necessarily have to be harassment in terms of messages but it can also be just monitoring someone's activity so finding where they're going to be at any one time tracking their location having malicious software on their phone and then harassment is more of kind of that horrible messages that you might get. And harassment can be a part of stalking, but they're two very separate things. Gotcha. What is cyber flashing? So cyber flashing is a relatively new term. So it came around, I want to say five, six years ago now with the release of AirDrop on iPhones, where mm-hmm. somebody could send you a message and it would go straight to your phone. Um, kind of like Bluetooth, but faster. And it would be where people are sending people intimate pictures that they really don't want to see when you're on a train or a plane or somewhere in public, usually. And that's just become illegal in the in the UK in the last couple of years now. But again, took a very long time to become that way. So essentially sending people pictures that they don't want to see, and it might be by things like airdropping, but it also might just be somebody on Snapchat or Facebook that's sending you dick pics that you really don't want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> grooming. I, I think we pretty much all know what grooming is, but maybe if you just want to touch on that a little bit in case someone is not aware. Yeah. So we tend to refer to grooming as preying on vulnerable people online, whether that's somebody young, somebody with additional needs, somebody who is older and doesn't understand what what's going on and using that to groom them either into a relationship potentially or to meet in person it might be grooming them into a piece of information sharing or sending a picture that they shouldn't be sharing so it can it can be in a variety of ways i think we often see grooming as crimes against younger people um, but it can be more vulnerable people as well whether that's old elderly or having additional needs Right. Again, no no age cap on any of this. <laughs> no, absolutely. What about doxing? Yeah, so doxing, again, a relatively newer thing. It's a um interesting name. I'm not really sure where it came from, but it's right? when somebody publishes information about you online. 
which might be your address, might be your phone number, your email, something private that you don't want shared. And we often see this being used against activists. So people like feminists or people that, I don't know, even animal rights activists or just people that generally have some sort of, I'd say controversy, but just some sort of reason for other people not to like them. So people will post their information online with this information to get people to turn up at their house, um, send them letters to harass them and stalk them. And it becomes a sort of group stalking. But it often starts off with just one person leading that with doxing where they post someone's information online. I know LaDonna with Deep Dark Secrets, you know, she is exposing death fetish and the death fetish community started doxing her. And that's yeah. scary. Yeah, we've spoken about that quite a few times and it's it's terrifying. And it can be something so innocent as well. I've seen it happen against women just because they work in cybersecurity and men don't like that. So I've seen it happen for those reasons. But then, yeah, in the Donna's case as well, terrifying because this is a, a group of people that are potentially really dangerous people. Um, And you don't know who has that information. So she's doing amazing work and I don't know how she does it. Right. No, I was actually on one of her episodes and I'm like, I'm going to try to be as polite as I can because I like my home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's what I say to her. It's like, I'm I'm looking at what she does. I don't know how you still do this and, and like still feel so empowered to do it. It's amazing how it's not taken anything away from her. Whereas for lots of people, it would. Oh, absolutely. And I do believe there were a few of them there at that convention. Cause as soon as she spoke, a big group of people got up and just left. For sure. That was interesting. For sure. It's really interesting. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got nothing to hide, then why why dox her or, or do the things that they do? Yeah, it's um, very interesting. Yes. And then intimate image abuse. Pretty much we know what that is. Your sexy photos or photos that you had either they took of you or you sent to them, but only them. But is there like a broader group in that category as well? No, that pretty much covers it. I think it's... I mean, a lot of people call it revenge porn. We don't use that terminology as much now because the idea of it kind of being porn is one thing. And then the idea of it being for revenge when it's not always actually used for revenge. Sometimes it is just part of a masculine culture where men feel that they're entitled to share these pictures that they've received or taken. And it's not necessarily revenge, but it's just a a male sharing thing to make them feel better about themselves, I guess. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting one in the different impacts it can have on people, because for some people, you might be a sex worker, for example, who posts pictures online of yourself and somebody takes those pictures that people have to pay for and post them publicly and take away your source of income. But then on the other side of that, you could have somebody who is completely, you could be somebody who's Muslim, for example, and somebody takes these pictures of you or that you've sent to them and post them online. And it can lead to masses of kind of honor-based abuse, for example. So in many cases, we see that Muslim women who have those pictures posted are often disowned by their families or actually their families become violent to them because of the posts. So the impact that it can have is is really varies depending on the individual. Absolutely. And these are scars that these people will hold on to 
for the rest of our lives. I mean, part of you has been put out there that it was never meant to be. That's very violating. Like, violating. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so it's violating. And then also what happens then is that you're then having to, if you do decide to report the crime to the police, you're having to tell your story again. You potentially come in contact with a police officer who may not necessarily, um, in some cases, doesn't believe you or in some cases doesn't see the issue as, as serious as it is. Um, I mean, sometimes you get a great officer and and it's fine, but there are rare cases where it does happen that you get an officer that doesn't necessarily understand. And even if you do get an officer that understands, you have to tell your story so many times to the police if you get through the criminal justice system, then to the courts, to other people, you have to act as a witness. So you're having to re-traumatise constantly because you're you're having to now go through the criminal justice system, which in some cases can take years, and it's constantly on the on the front of your mind. And I'm sure all these people that are getting involved have to see these photos so they know what it is that's out there. Yeah, totally. I've had so many cases of that where somebody has has called the police, the police come out to them and said, well, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry to ask, but I have to see the messages and the photos. And kind of standing in front of somebody whilst they're looking at those photos is is really horrible. So it's not only that initial impact, but it's what ends up kind of carrying over with you. And actually, sometimes even the perpetrator's behavior isn't the worst part it's that kind of having to go through that criminal justice process which is why so many victims of cybercrime end up dropping out of of the criminal justice process because they can't cope with going through their story so much right and that happens with so many crimes you know unfortunately the survivors or victims you know they they are constantly re-victimized, either by going to the courts every time there's a parole hearing or, you know, if they do an appeal. It's just, it's constant. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard. And I mean, in the UK, I don't know, I, I mean, I'm finding it's very similar to in the US, but it's very hard to prosecute cases of cybercrime. And whilst it does happen, when it does happen, you have to go through all of these court proceedings and then you might find out that they don't get sentenced and you just feel like you've done everything for nothing. But actually, these are the sorts of cases now that are changing the law. Even if nothing happens, it changes the law for the next person, hopefully. Um, but that's little reassurance for people that are are having to re-victimise um, themselves just to get their their voices out there. Right. So you had some very interesting statistics about, you know, how digital vulnerabilities occur. And I have to admit that I am on one of these. (laughs) (laughs) You have 76% of people have no multi-factor authentication. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing because... Multi-factor authentication, firstly, is where you type in your password and then you get either a code sent to your phone or you have an app on your phone that gives you a code or a a passkey you have to plug in. So it's most common on things like banking apps. But where it's really interesting is with social media accounts because they're not there by default. You have to dig into your settings and go and find it. And for a lot of people, 
when you think to yourself, oh, it's never going to happen to me, or you have no reason to think it will happen, you don't bother setting that up, or you don't even know it's there in the first place in most cases. So that's one thing that I'm really passionate about is that companies really need to be enforcing safe settings and having two-factor authentication enabled by default. Because if it's something that you expect people to turn on themselves and they haven't been a victim of a cybercrime in the past, they have no reason to even know that that's a feature that exists, but it's the most important tool of, of any cybersecurity tool. I mean, I'll be one of the first people to admit it's annoying to have to either go look at an email for the code or get a text message. Obviously, I prefer the text message, but you know what? When you get that unexpected text message or that unexpected email saying, here's your code, you're like, holy fuck, someone's actually trying. Yeah, it actually reinforces into you that, oh gosh, okay, like it's a good thing I had that on. And I've seen so many cases that unfortunately could have been prevented by someone having two-factor, especially in cases of stalking, where it's an ex-partner who knows how to guess their password or has physical access to their phone and could find their password written in their notes or whatever it might be. Um, just two-factor authentication would stop that completely. And I totally can't blame people for not having it set up because it's so easy to not think about. And it totally falls on companies that don't have this set up to be doing that themselves. Right. 75% have a weak privacy setting on social media. Yeah, I mean, I'm terrible for this one myself. I'll admit that one. So all my social media accounts are super public. And I think that's the case for a lot of people who are very public and kind of have to be, whether that's for their jobs or the job that they want to go into. And so many people want to be influencers or are influencers now on social media. So it's something that kind of some people just cannot do. But a lot of people, again, aren't aware that their Facebook profile is public and that their posts that they're putting out there can be seen by people that aren't their friends. And again, it's something that when you make a social media account, by default, all of your posts are public. And if you don't seek to go and turn that off, you're never going to know that they're public in the first place. Right. And then before you know it, it's your picture being used to catfish somebody. It's crazy. <laughs> totally. And that's the, that's the, yeah, the scary thing. I've had cases that have been that. And uh, actually, my my best friend, her picture was used to catfish somebody. Um, oh and um, she got messages from people threatening to come to her house and kill her and her children and all sorts because they thought that she'd stolen their money. That, but then it's also the posts that people put on their Facebook where they say, hey, I'm going on holiday for a week. Here's some pictures of me on holiday. And then everybody knows that your house is open. And we actually did some work on this for a TV show in the UK a few years ago where we had uh, a couple and we had to look into their social and into their Facebook and social media accounts and their emails. And we found so much information about them, found the dates they were going on holiday. We found an email they'd sent to their landlord saying that one of the latches on their window had broken. And immediately we had uh, a way to enter their house and some dates where they weren't going to be home. So it's it's just so easy to to put that stuff together when you're you're just posting everything online, which a lot of people do nowadays. Right. I am noticing, though, more people are starting to post about their vacation once they get back home. Yeah, it's got a lot better for sure. And I think there's been a lot of awareness about that. The one that gets me is the posts that are like, what's your, uh, what's this name of the street you grew up on and what's your mother's maiden name and put them together and it's your porn star name. And those are the exact questions that you get asked when you try to uh, phone up your bank 
so it's it's really interesting to see how willing people are to share that information without thinking what might else it be used for right i have seen stuff like that and a lot of times i get out but you're right some people be like oh no biggie all right yeah i never even thought about it until somebody brought it up to me before i was in cyber and said and and somebody said to me what that information was used for and i thought oh damn i never even thought about that um but it's so true right 69 percent of people use the same password on multiple accounts yeah this is a big one and i think people don't realize what a big deal that is because your password is your key for everything and it's so easy to use the same thing just to remember it but there's so many tools to help you nowadays like password managers like if you've got an iphone or sometimes with android phones as well um, and you make a new account it automatically gives you a really complicated password you can put in and save to your phone which is an awesome tool but i think the major thing with passwords is that if one is breached, so for example, a big one a few years ago was my fitness pal, where you can like track your calories and things that you're eating. And um, they got breached a few years ago and everyone's passwords, usernames, email addresses were posted online and the dark web. That became public for anybody to use. So if you're using that password for one thing, the chances are you using it on other things. So because your email's on there as well, they might now have access to your email account. They might now have access to your social media and potentially your bank accounts and shopping accounts. So it becomes kind of a, a big thing where you think, oh, it's okay. They've only got my password for my fitness pal. Like they can just see what food I've eaten this week. That's fine. But actually, if you've got that same login information for everything else, then it becomes massive. Right. No. And I didn't even think of that at first. When I read that, I was thinking, okay, so that means if somebody knows what you use, they can get into everything. But yeah, hello, breaches. (laughs) I get breached quite a bit with my Yahoo account. It's crazy. Yeah, totally. And no matter how complicated your password is, there's always a chance for that data to be breached. Because if somebody manages to hack whoever it might be, a, a provider that you have and get that information, they, if you're using that same password, they can then use that for other things as well. So it's definitely something to watch out for because you should get an email from the provider when it does happen. But also a lot of nowadays password managers will warn you and say your password's been found in a data breach. So you have that warning. It's just then on you to actually act on that. And it's really hard to say to yourself, okay, I'm actually going to go and change my password. I know that firsthand, but it is so important. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm bad at that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'll, I'll admit it straight out. Sixty three percent of people shared their password with their predator. Yeah, and I think that's so easy to do, especially when you think with stalking in particular. A lot of cyber stalking cases are conducted by an ex partner or a current partner, and what we find is that. Because during the relationship, it's usually abusive as well. So the perpetrator will often gaslight the victim into thinking that them, the perpetrator, is really good at IT and really tech savvy and that the victim is terrible with IT. And that's usually not the case. In a lot of cases, we have people come to us and say, I'm really bad with IT, so I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then they end up being like amazing. But it turns out that their ex-partner has put them down and made them think that way. So we often find that during the course of the relationship, the ex-partner will have set up all of their accounts for them um, and set up devices for them. So as a result, they know all of their passwords and immediately have access to them. 
This next one is crazy. 38% of these people, their perpetrator is the one who set up the accounts for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, yeah, the same sort of thing. So a lot of the time, the the ex-partner will be one that sets up their accounts. And we often find, especially a big thing that we're seeing now is the rise of smart devices being used. So with things like um, Amazon Echoes, and I say the other name because if I say his proper name, it will start going off. Um, But the Amazon (laughs) Echoes in particular, we find that people are being set up by their ex-partner. They're linked to their ex-partner's Amazon account. And with that, if you've got the Amazon app on your phone, you can use the drop-in feature, which allows you to go and press a button and immediately listen in to everything that's happening in the room that that device is in without it ringing or giving a warning. I mean, the screen, it, it lights up green, but that's that's it. If you don't know what it means, then you just ignore it. So things like that, once your partner's left the home, you don't really think about, you might not even know that there's an app associated with it. So it totally takes control over over not only the accounts that they have now, but often over their homes as well, because you have things like smart thermostats that turn your heating on and off, smart kettles. So we're seeing a massive increase in cases where, especially in the UK, we're in a cost of living crisis. And as soon as somebody leaves the house, they see on the ring doorbell that they've left the house and will then go and turn up the thermostat to, to full blast so that they have a really high electric bill to pay. What? Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Uh, we've seen that more and more as as kind of the cost of living increases. We're Dude, seeing kind find of a hobby. Like that's not yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's it relies on people literally sitting there. And that's the thing with stalking in particular, is it is literally an obsession. So if somebody's obsessed, like they're going to do everything around that and I think that's what a lot of people don't think about with stalking is that it is an obsession and and some stalkers don't even realize that what they're doing is stalking yeah actually I just started watching a uh, show on Netflix called I am a stalker very yeah. interesting <laughs> yeah really interesting I think yeah a lot of cases it becomes it becomes a mental health thing where people get an obsession around a person and you can do everything you want to do in terms of taking someone's access away but they're just going to find another way because that's the very definition of stalking right what's scary about these guys is most of them don't they didn't realize they were doing something wrong it's like i but i just needed to talk to her i just wanted to tell her this thing you know i just i just needed to talk to her and it's like but she didn't want to talk to you (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's a matter of finding that really hard to grasp. And I think it's um yeah, it's that it's also feeling I mean, a lot of these stalking activities that we see are predated by abusive relationships. So during the course of relationships, there's abuse, usually emotional, um, and usually controlling. So they don't even realize that that's wrong. So then when they come out of the relationship and either they want revenge or they want to get back together with the person that they're stalking. They don't see it as wrong. It's just a course of behavior that they they think is completely normal and that they're entitled to. Right. Just to watch them, like, rationalize why they did what they did, it just gives you such an insight. And just, it should show how dangerous these people are because they're just, they don't get the big picture and they're not going to stop until they get what they want. 
No, exactly. And I think that there's so much misinformation out there now with like things like incels, which there's been a lot of work going into, but there's a lot of communities out there for men and women that rationalize abusive behavior and make it seem that it's normal because these other people in this community are doing it as well. And incels is a massive one. There's been loads of work going into recently, but it becomes like an echo chamber of people that are telling you this behavior is okay. So you start to think it's okay because that's all you're surrounded by. Right. Or, I mean, you're not telling the whole story and the friends are like, no, man, don't don't let that one get away. But they don't really realize the truth in the whole thing. Yeah, Yeah, totally. (laughs) Because it's so easy to downplay what's actually happening. Definitely. Right. So if somebody would like your services, do they just go to the cyberhelpline.com? Is there a phone number? Is it going to be different for US and the UK? How does all that work? Yeah. So right now, the best thing to do is go to the cyberhelpline.com and click on the get help button. You'll then be able to use our chatbot in order to type in your issue. It will diagnose your issue and give you a actual name for what you're experiencing. Um, because I think that's a big thing is some people who want to know what they're experiencing actually has a name and they're not going through it alone. So there's over 50 different categories of cybercrime and online harm that it looks at. And then we'll give you some guidance that is now US specific into steps that you can take. Um, and then come October, if you need more help, you'll be able to speak to our amazing helpline responder team who are US volunteers um, qualified in cybersecurity and law enforcement that will be able to talk you through some more steps that you can take. That is so amazing. 50 different things. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And I still have a list of things I want to add to that, but it's, uh, yeah, oh. it's changing every day. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, we need an army. <laughs> yeah. Like a cyber army. Like, right. <laughs> Jeez. But I mean, that's amazing. I, I love what you're doing. This is so freaking needed. It's really sad that you're the only one doing it. But I think that's also amazing because you deserve all the freaking praise and props for doing it. But (laughs) thank you so much. No, it's awesome. And we have a massive community of volunteers who are just incredible. We have have over 100 volunteers here in the UK now. Um, And hopefully that will become the same in America. Yeah, it's it's amazing how many people in the cybersecurity industry really want to get involved and use their skills to help people. That's amazing. We need more like that. Stop being creepy and start helping. <laughs> yeah, totally. That should be on my own. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. See you later. Yes. Bye. The link to the cyber hotline will be in the bottom of the show notes. I have also added her to both of my websites, crimeovercocktails.com and thecrimeconnection.org. So if you are in need, please go find her and let's get these groups. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And the podcast of the month for the Deluxe Network is The Broken System, which is a true crime podcast where he is trying to solve the case of DJ Fickery and his tragic love story and love triangle. And you also have Quad Pro Quo. That's where Allie, Guido, Matt, and Tammy talk movies. And it was inspired by The Silence of the Lambs, which is kind of creepy. So I don't know, you might like it. So make sure you check those out as well. And we'll talk crime another time. Bye.